Let's just pray before we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who um, is with us. And you're, the Bible, you describe yourself as the bread of life. And Lord, we thank you that you're a God who feeds your people in the wilderness or feeding of the 5,000. And so, Lord, we ask you to work a miracle this evening. We ask that you would take your word and turn it into something that would feed us and give us nourishment, and that we would see ourselves reflected in it and be changed as a consequence of it. We ask this in your name. Amen. It was the Saturday evening before Christmas. Eleven million people were glued to the box. Chris Hollands took to the dance floor. The cheeky sports presenter from BBC Breakfast, he sort of did his dance and it went okay. Ricky Whittle, the smooth Hollyoaks guy, came on next. He was the boogie's favourite. But the thing was the judges then gave their votes. Seeing it was the final, they were pretty generous on both sides, nothing too harsh, but everybody thought Ricky was going to win. In actual fact, though, the public vote came in and Chris Hollands won, and it was big excitement. He felt slightly embarrassed at the end because he even he thought he shouldn't have won. But the issue was that the judges and the public were looking at different criteria. The big thing was that Chris had gone from this clueless dancer and had had this journey of transformation, and that was what the public wanted. And then so often in life, we have to judge things, don't we? The issue is then, what's the criteria? You know when you're standing around chatting to your mates, you go, oh, what would be the best Irish rugby team for this Six Nations? You're judging events against various criteria. If you're reading Heat magazine, you know you've got two celebs wearing the same dress, and you judge which one looks better in it. Other things, you know, even tonight, when you go home over your cup of tea, you'll be judging how the pianist was, even how I was, how Christoph led the service. But it all depends on the criteria that we want to use. The thing is, God actually gives us things that we want to judge about. We've been thinking about politicians, the fact that this is an election year. There are things that we need guidance from God on how to judge things. And in the passage that we're looking at tonight, the author of Kings gives his judgment on the people who have been ruling his people. It's an interesting chapter, and we've sort of looked at two sections of it that we've read, but it would actually be helpful if you could have the Bible open, because what we do is we'll have a sort of helicopter ride over seven or eight kings that are reading God's, or leading God's people at that time. I want to have a bit of a review. Why, do, why are kings so important for God's people? It's interesting, whenever God sort of established his people with Abraham, they were traveled, if you remember, to the promised land, then they went to Egypt, and then they get back into the promised land again. And the thing was that God's people were never really supposed to be ruled by a king. There's the issue where throughout Judges, they have a a leader who's supposed to make decisions in weighty legal matters and stuff like that. But as a people, they're, they're not supposed to have a king. You'll probably know about Gideon who is one of the most successful judges. And throughout the course of his life, there's one point where the God's people actually say, Gideon, you're doing quite a good job. How about you leading us and then the rest of your generations, your family afterwards, your children, being set up as a king? And he goes, hang on a second, you've forgotten the whole point. As God's people, our God is king. And that sort of satisfies them for a while. And then God's people sort of see as they're living in the promised land, they look around and go, well, actually, we quite like the way all these other nations round about us have a king. We want one. And they go to Samuel, 
and um, say, you know, actually, can God give us a king like all the other nations? I think there's, that's an interesting phrase because they make the vital flaw. They ask for a king like all the other nations, and whereas in actual fact, they should have asked for a king that was far superior to all the other nations, a king that was perfect, a king that reflected God. And so we're in a situation where we get Saul, who fails. We've got David, who's a man after God's own heart, but ultimately fails. We've Solomon, who starts off good. And then we're in the section, as um, Christoph was talking about, whenever we have these two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. And um, we were chatting last week about um, Jeroboam and finding out all that he had been up to. What I want to do, though, is take you on a ride, as you can see there. We've got the um, kings on Judah's side with Rehoboam, Abijah, and Asa. And then clearly the slide hasn't worked, but you'll have a few others um, who have disappeared off the, off the slide there, um, who are the kings in Israel. So we'll start off in 1 Kings 14, 21, and we're looking at Rehoboam. And basically, he follows on after Solomon and leads Judah into in sin. It's interesting as we look at the summary of what these kings have been doing, there's the key verse each time that the author of Kings makes as a comment on their reign. In verse 22, it's the big one on Rehoboam. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. It's important to see where this fits into what's been going on. As we were saying, we'd started with Saul, who wasn't great, but then David was the high point of how Israel was supposed to be. He had an army, he had a palace. Israel was as good as it could be with David. And only two kings later, we have Solomon who goes astray, and then we have Rehoboam who is leading Judah to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's important to know what the sin was. Rehoboam's problem was that he still had the high places, the sacred stones and the Asherah pools, worshipping other gods other than Yahweh, Israel's true God. There's also the progression. He was doing more than their fathers had done. There's this sense of decline from David to Solomon to Rehoboam. God's people are getting worse at doing the things that they're supposed to be doing. And the thing is that that compromise, that no longer following Yahweh the way they were supposed to, leads to crisis. And what happens is the king of Egypt invades And as a consequence, what we hear is that the treasures from the temple, the very temple where Yahweh was to be worshipped, gets raided and the gold is taken away. And there's a sad verse where um, it's told that King Rehoboam had the shields made for the temple guard out of bronze because there was no gold in the kingdom. Quite literally, the golden age of Solomon, whenever there was this spectacular temple that the Queen of Sheba came to see and all that kind of thing, had been literally replaced with this Bronze Age where God's people couldn't actually put together some golden shields. It's interesting that happens and he uh, dies and um, he's then, the next king that we hear about is Abijah. There's further decline. God's people um, have, have moved away from the way that they're supposed to be. Again, the sort of the summary verses, 1 Kings 15 verse 3, he committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his David his forefather had been. You see, we've got David who's the pinnacle. David, who um, God's people were supposed to look up to and gradually were moving away and away. And everybody commits the sins that their father has done, but actually does worse. 
And what's the reason for this is that his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. It's interesting as we go on in the summary of Abijah, what we read is that in verse 4, nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. That's quite a funny image, and it's a thing that probably needs a bit more work. Um, and if you um, have a look back at First um, Kings 11, verse 34 and to 36, there's this whole chapter in which there's a prophecy for Solomon and an explanation about how the, the kingdoms are going to be divided. And what he says is that I will give one tribe to his sons so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. This idea that God had made a promise that through David, he was going to do something spectacular. He was going to keep a king on the throne. So the issue is that even though Abijah is no David, because God has made his promise, because God is a God who is faithful and keeps his promise, nevertheless, even though he sins, God is going to give him a son and keep him on the throne. Again, we see the comparison in verse 5. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. The author of Kings rattles through these people quite quickly, and we move on to Asa, the one we were hearing about in the reading. Again, it's important to see sort of what's the summary verse. What did the author of Kings think about Asa as we see him? And in verse 11 it says, Asa did what was right in the eyes of his Lord, in the eyes of the Lord, as his father had done. Again, note the comparison with David. David's the gold standard. The rest of these people are compared to it, and, and in Asa's case, he comes up to the mark. What does he do that makes him so good? It goes on to say, expels the shrine prostitutes. He got rid of all the idols. He cleans up this worship. He even gets rid of his grandmother in her position as the queen mother. Um, because she was worshipping other gods. Asa cut down the pole and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Again, just to reinforce how good Asa was, in verse 14, it's Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. It even goes on, the issue of the gold in the temple is important, because actually Asa gets gold and he brings it back into the temple and um, he restores some of the treasuries. But then, Asa turns out to be a bit of a disappointment. Because in the very situation where he's put to the test, whenever war comes, instead of relying on God to see him through, he seeks an alliance with the king of Aram. That gold in the temple that mattered so much beforehand, he's happy enough to delve into it, take it and use it as tribute to buy off one of his enemies. He asked for a treaty to be between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. And he sends the gold so that um, the uh, king of Aram would be on his side. In the end, the summary, sort of the summary verse at the very end, we get the interesting story to find that in his old age, his feet became diseased. It's an interesting to know, and the medic sort of part of me wanted to look that up further. If you're intrigued to know, he probably had gout, is what people think, um, is, is the best thing. But it's this idea that the once great leader had 
sort of weakened and weakened to the point where actually the most noteworthy thing is that he had sore feet in the end of his life. Whilst we see those kings in Judah, we've had two sort of bad ones and then Asa, who's the gold standard. Um, then we move over to Israel and see that in actual fact the situation in Israel is in no way better. If anything, it's worth, worse. Jeroboam, as we were learning about last week, is held up as this bad guy because he was trying to create a whole new worship system which was, was suited him. His son Nadab becomes king of Israel and he did evil just as much as his father had done. Again, the author of Kings gives a summary verse in 26, verse 26. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. The most interesting thing about looking at through these kings is it actually makes the events of Stormont and Westminster pale into insignificance. This is exciting stuff here. The uh, news of the world would have had plenty of headlines to write about here. Because what happens, Nadab, is actually Basha, a member of his household, plots against him and decides to strike him down and kill him. Basha then becomes the king and actually wipes out all of Jeroboam's children and inheritance. This was, of course, done to fulfill what God had prophesied. And again, we see why it happened in verse 30. It's because Jeroboam had committed and had caused Israel to commit sins that had provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. So Nadab's reign is over, and Basha comes along again, the one that we were hearing about in the reading this evening. The summary verse for Basha is no better. Verse 34, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. I hope you see the trend. Just as the house of Judah is compared to David, the house of Israel is consistently compared to Jeroboam. Jeroboam is as bad as you can get. David's as good as you can get. Basha, as we read about in the reading tonight, plotted against Nadab and killed him, but he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so much so that God gave him a warning. He has a prophet who comes and says that you've done evil, you've walked in the ways of Jeroboam, and you're going to be cut off. Basha doesn't listen. He provokes the Lord to anger, and what happens is that in the 26th year of Asa, Eli, son of Basha, becomes king. Eli is no better. He succeeds him as king, but whilst he's getting drunk, with one of his officials, another official comes and strikes him down and kills him. Zimri came in, struck him down, killed him, and he dies. As soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off all of Basha's family, just as Jeroboam's family had been killed off. Um, Elah's family is killed off as well. Elah succeeds him as king, um, but Zimri then strikes him and kills him. And you can see what happens as the nation descends into further godliness, there's no stability. The country is restless, there's no rule, there's no sort of flow with who should be in charge. As there is increased godlessness, there's no stability. Zimri destroys all of Basha's family and reigns for the grand total of seven days. The Israelites hear about his treason and the murder and Omri, a commander in the army, lays siege of Zimri in Terza. 
Zimri, a man of great integrity, whenever he sees that um, the world is against him, decides to kill himself and burns down the palace. Omri then takes over Israel, um, but Israel doesn't know who to follow. The army splits into two factions, and we have Omri and Zimri fighting against each other. Basically, Israel has now descended into a state of civil war. Again, we see the phrase that sort of condemns him. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam. He provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. It's not until Zimri dies that finally there is a bit of peace and Omri gets to rule unhindered. It's a whistle-stop tour, but I hope you see what's been going on. Basically, from the high point of David, um, God's people, whether in Judah or Israel, have descended into chaos. The author of the king shows us God's standard. A king is either compared to being as good as David or not, or as bad as Jeroboam or not. It's interesting to note what we think about what's important to write about the history. This is the author of Kings who's writing about the history of God's people, and yet he doesn't mention the GDP increase. He doesn't mention much about the wars and uh, what's been going on. He doesn't mention about agriculture and so on. The most important thing that the author of Kings sees is how the king's relationship with God is. It's interesting, I don't know if any of you have read Andrew Moore's History of Modern Britain, but as you flick through it, often he doesn't mention, um, or at all, he doesn't mention Margaret Thatcher's relationship with God, Wilson's relationship with God, Callaghan's relationship with God. The nature is, King's is pointing us to what God's standard is, and that's not the standard that we judge our own politicians. It's interesting as well that Kings, the author of Kings seems to be implying that we get the politicians or the rulers that we deserve. The people clearly were happy up to a point with the rulers that they had. And it's interesting today, as I was looking over this, I was thinking, how often do we pray for our politicians? And today in Kirkpatrick, we've been doing quite well, having prayed for them in the morning and the evening service. Um, but it's a thing that we probably get the politicians we deserve by the amount we pray for them and are interested in their lives. It's also interesting, I suppose, in an election year, if we're thinking who we vote for. The author of Kings wouldn't be saying the issue is not about grammar schools or the 11 plus or things like that. The issue for the author of Kings is how will they have their relationship with God and as a consequence lead their people. More personally, though, he looks at the individual and says, did they meet the standard of David or did they meet the standard of Jeroboam? We've talked about the terminal decline, but when he's weighing them up, the good people that we want to be are the kings of Judah. And the issue always with them is how their heart is. David was a man after God's own heart. Asa's heart was fully devoted to God. The point the author of Kings is making is that actually to be somebody who can lead God's people, to be somebody who can follow God fully, it's a matter of how our heart is. Solomon knew this. In Proverbs 4 verse 23, he says, above all else, guard your heart for it affects everything you do. Solomon even knew this to the point when he was addressing the people of Israel. 
In 1 Kings 8, 61, he's saying, and may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God, to live by his decrees and obey his commands. That's what Solomon was saying to the people of Israel, but actually in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, we have this wonderful image of God looking around at our hearts this evening. He says, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The challenge, I suppose, is that we're in the third week in January. It's a good enough time as any to have a review and to say, how committed is our heart to God? If we're being faced with the question, are we a David or are we a Jeroboam? Is our heart fully committed to him? It's interesting in the lives of the Israelite kings to see what sort of went wrong. And I suppose there are probably three things that can help us to see how that relationship with God can fall apart. The first one is simply enough disobedience. God had been explicit with his people regarding the issue of marriage. In Deuteronomy 7, 1-4, God says, Don't marry those outside your faith. And the kings of Judah had Solomon to thank because, as we know from Asa, uh, or we know from the first king, whose name I've entirely forgotten, as we know from Abijah, <laughs> um, or his, Solomon had married an Ammonite, somebody who was outside of God's people, and that started to lead them astray. The thing is, there's probably nothing that affects the heart more than blatant disobedience. The fact is that Solomon knew what he was doing, and yet he went ahead and did it anyway. Solomon chose to ignore the command and do his own thing. So Rehoboam's mother was an Ammonite, and consequently they had to live with the consequences of that. The challenge for us as we do our audit of how close our heart is to God is, is there anything in, we're sp in which we're specifically disobeying God? Is there some aspect of our lives in which we see God pointing us and prodding us and saying, this is not as it should be? The thing is that as we willfully disobey God, then we gradually drift away from him. Is there something that we consciously know we're doing wrong, and yet we continue to do it? The challenge is, knowing God's word isn't enough. Knowing Solomon knew what he was supposed to do, but the challenge is, if we're to be disciples of Jesus Christ, is to follow it and apply it to our daily activities and decisions. Is there anything we're doing in which we're specifically disobeying God? The second thing that happened in the lives of the God's people and the kings that were ruling them was that there was compromise. Compromise is different from disobedience. It's sort of that gradual drift, isn't it? Disobedience is so clinical. It's that decision where we actively say no and move away. Compromise is this gradual drift, the creeping pace of accumulated compromise where we start to mix it and allow things in. And then over time, we find that we've drifted from where we once were. If we do it more often, we become desensitized, and we find that there's eventually there's nothing wrong with it. The trouble with compromise is that it dilutes our Christianity to something lukewarm, something that in Revelation we're told leaves a sour taste in the mouth of God. What we're called to do is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
but compromise reduces the intensity. It erodes our commitment and it distorts our devotion. We've got a scenario tonight of several kings in whom this happened. Asa did well in that he got rid of some of the things, but as we read later on in his life, he didn't abandon the high places entirely. He was able to leave them there and he sort of compromised on it and said, that's grand, we'll see how it goes. And then in the end, whenever he's actually going to war, we see that the compromise is that he sort of goes, well, I understand that God's with me, but just to be on the safe side, I'll buy off my enemy and ensure that he's on my side as well. Gradually, the compromise sets in and he ends up at the point where the most interesting thing about this reign is that he had sore feet. Again, the question is, are there any areas of compromise in our lives as we're doing our audit of how our heart is before God? Are there those things that we come across that we're sort of tolerating that are actually causing us to gradually drift away? Louise and I were having a chat um, on the way up to church this morning about some of the people I work with. And the conversations that you have with them, you're in a scenario where people who are paid a lot of money end up with things, large TVs, swimming pools, and stuff like that. And we were saying it gets to the point where you almost think that that's normality, and that's what we should be aspiring to. And the reason I were saying, you know, the challenge for us is to go actually looking at the world and saying, you know, the compromise would be to say, huge TVs are normal. To fit in with the people I'm working with, that's what I need. But the thing is, the challenge for us is to say no and to try and get that out of our lives. The other thing, and the third thing that happened with God's people and the kings is distraction. Some people suggest that distraction in the Christian life is inevitable, and in actual fact, some things that are good can distract us even more. The purpose of God's people, the purpose of the Israelites, were to bring worship to Yahweh. It wasn't to build good cities. It wasn't to build land or gain more land. It wasn't to be seen by other nations as a great place to be. Purely, their purpose was to bring worship to God. So the trouble is that they get distracted by things. Elah got distracted by drink. Asa got concerned about trade and wars and not worshiping God. And the other people, didn't even, that didn't even focus on what they were thinking about. For us, in our lives, are there things that are distracting us and leading us away from worshiping God? Are they good things? Are they things like coming to meetings, um, in church even? Are there things like seeing our friends? And all these things that we can try and argue and raise up as good things. Or are there things that are distracting us from our sole purpose to bring worship to God? If we're thinking about an audit of how how close our heart is to God, how close we're following him, we need to think about those things that we spend our time and our money on and decide whether they're actually essential to us in what we were made to be. It's as good a time as any to look at our bank balance and to look at our week and to see what is keeping us from having our focus entirely on him. Disobedience, compromise, and distraction mess with our hearts. They messed with the hearts of the kings who were chosen to lead God's people. We need to guard our hearts and ensure that we don't 
fall behind and fall away from God. The interesting thing is, as we look at the kings that are leading God's people, they're the ones that clearly fail and lead God to be angry, but they're also the ones that are held up to be good. David, a man after God's own heart. Asa, a king who was fully devoted to God. But yet, as we've seen, David was great except for the scenario with Uriah the Hittite. Asa was good except for the weakness that he had um, with completely getting rid of all the high places. The worrying thing is that whenever we look at the kings, the good kings actually don't seem to be that much better than the bad kings. And the depressing thing for us is to say, well, where can we go from here? At least it won't be as bad as a Jeroboam, but you know, even if I'm as, if I'm as good as a David or an Asa, that's not actually that good. The interesting thing is that all these kings are mentioned later in the Bible. It reads like this, Rehoboam, well, and Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiyad. Abiyad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. Some of you are wondering where we're going here. Eleazar, the father of Matham. Matham, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. The interesting thing is that as we look at kings and as Christoph has been alluding earlier, the point is that both David and Asa, as good as they were, failed. We know it. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and have fallen short of God's standard. These kings are part of that lamp that was mentioned earlier, this idea that God was going to keep his promise, that one day there would be a king on the throne of Israel who would actually be able to meet God's standard, whose heart would be fully devoted to God because he was God himself. The exciting thing for us is, as Hebrews put it, we have a great high priest who was in all points tested as we are yet without sin. Folks, the interesting thing as we look at these kings who were good and bad is that we're pointed to the fact that we need God's grace. The Bible describes a disciple's heart also as a praising heart, a searching heart, a serving heart, but most important of all, a repentant heart. Jeremiah 24 verse 7 says, They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. The exciting thing tonight is, as we do our audit of how our heart is, we may not be as bad as a Jeroboam, we may not even be as good as a David or an Asa, we may be somewhere in between. 
But the promise is that actually one of the descendants of these kings is the person who makes our repentance possible, who means that we can have a relationship with God, and who means that we can one day follow him to be in a place where angels and choirs and multitudes that no one can number call him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because he was able to meet God's standard. Folks, as we finish tonight, the challenge for us is that we need to rely more and more on the grace of God to transform us, to make us more like him, and to forgive our sins and to make us more and more perfect so that one day we can share eternity with him. That's the challenge. It's not to be a Jeroboam. It's not to be a David. It's not to be an Asa. It's to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.